you should hire good people, get the hell out of the way, let them do their work, and you should trust them. You don't need to micromanage them. Make their compensation structure work for remote to where you're not needing to micromanage them or you feel like, hey, they're not doing enough. to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. This episode is sponsored by CareCredit, the popular third-party payment provider. They are also supporters of the Veterinary Financial Summit. Visit carecredit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Isaiah Douglas. He is a financial planner and partner at Vincere Wealth Management. And Isaiah is a good friend of the Veterinary Financial Summit. He's been a panelist at all three events so far. We first chatted back in 2019, and that's when we met. He had mentioned, hey, if you ever have any interest in becoming a CFP, a certified financial planner, let me know. And at the time, I said, I'm good. I'm going to keep working as an ER doctor. And fast forward a few years, and now we're working together at Vincere and focusing on financial planning for veterinarians. Slow, steady, consistent asks, and finally, I made it happen. So it's exciting. <laughs> no, we appreciate having you here. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's always fun to chat to both of you. And he's also the first guest that we've had on a second time risky bringing me on a second time. Hopefully I can give you a few good rants and then that'll make for good like editable clips from there. Oh yeah, I love that ranting. So with that rant, I love your podcast and you make a lot of predictions. So <laughs> what are your thoughts on predictions on the financial landscape in 2023? I did a prediction, I think at the end of 21 into 2022. And if anyone like goes back and listens to that, my success rate was very bad. So I think I'm probably one of the worst persons to ask on predictions. But your question is for 2023, just like the markets in general and like where things stand. We'll talk about Bitcoin later. So so yeah, the market, let's say the market. <laughs> I wasn't even going to try to go there yet, right? Like you got to at least warm people up with like one or two questions. But yeah, I think 2023 is likely going to shape up and be weird, right? Very technical term, similar to what 2022 did. We shared a chart in the email that goes out to both clients and non-clients, but just people that sign up to our email newsletter list at Vincere. And what it showed is from 1871 through 2022, nominal returns. So returns that when you look at your investment statement, right? Whatever it tells you the return is, that's nominal. Real returns are when you factor in inflation, fees, taxes, all that other stuff. But anyways, nominal returns. And you look at stocks and bonds, which is the vast majority of what I would say wealth management and how most people invest. So that's really their only option in a 401k plan. And traditionally, financial advisors kind of recommend a 60-40 blend. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds. And if you had that portfolio, you had the worst experience that you've had since the 1920s. So it was a really weird year. It sucked for a lot of people because the money, especially those that are older, the money they were told was safe didn't really work. It didn't really protect them and actually had as much, if not more, ups and downs and in, in volatility than the stock market did. And neither one of those offset each other. And so I think what was a really good lesson learned is, you know, interest rates have fallen since the early 1980s and had started to rise for the first time a little bit in 2021 and then really strong in 2022. And I keep hearing over and over again, well, when interest rates go down, well, what if interest rates just normalize and just stay here? And I think a lot of people are predetermined, pre-wired to this idea of, well, interest rates have to go down. They have to go back down to 3% or next to nothing for my 30-year mortgage. It's like, well, they might not. And so the prediction for 2023 is I think it's going to be more about survival and just kind of maintaining. I don't think anyone's going to have one of those banner years where it's like, oh, I'm so glad I owned XYZ stock and I made all this money. I think it's more or less going to be, okay, what was my savings rate? Did I continue to do things that I can control? And it's probably going to be another one of those kind of weird and frustrating years. I think there's opportunities, but I think 2023 will be a strange one when we look back and reflect on it the same way that 2022 was, where it's like, hmm, we haven't seen these things happen in a long time. So bringing vet med into that equation, of course, there's a lot of talk about that maybe we're already in a recession or there's a looming recession moving forward, potentially into 2023. And there's also a lot of talk about vet med potentially being a recession-proof industry. And so what do you think about that? Do you think FetMed is recession-proof? And also, can you define what that means? 
Sure. I don't think anything's recession proof. I think there's businesses that are better at handling recessions and Batman has historically shown that. You go back to the tech wreck. So early 2000s, you go through the great financial crisis, you go through COVID. There's periods where it's scary as hell, right? Where it's really nerve wracking, but overall revenues don't really decline. Now, I think a lot of the revenue in VetMed over the last couple of years probably got over accelerated to where you maybe saw a big push up and maybe you're going to feel things start to normalize. So it'll look like revenues are down. I think that might surprise some people. But overall, I mean, veterinary medicine is a service business. And when you look at service businesses, a lot of times those are still categorized as something that is a discretionary spend. Now, the cool thing is the growth of the kind of the human animal bond, especially in the United States, but across the world is much higher than it's been historically. And so I think that is not as much of a discretionary spend, but much more of kind of that, hey, this is a fixed cost. Like we're going to budget in that we're going to take care of our pets. The family pet is going to get the care that it needs. So I think veterinary medicine will still be a really great spot to be if we're in a recession. I want to say if, I probably should say we are, because if you just change the definition of something, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Well, you know what? This isn't what it looks like. I'm going to change the definition of that. And that's basically what's been done with a recession. So a recession is technically two quarters of GDP decline. We've already had that. We had that in 2022. So it's kind of silly. And there's all these semantics and all these different things. But if you go out into the real world and talk to real people, they're struggling. And I think we've been in a recession and we'll probably continue to be in one. Yeah. And, you know, going with recession and what you previously mentioned about interest rate, what's the issue with a high interest rate environment? So with interest rates being higher, it's all relative. So if we reflect back, we might have parents that said, well, my first mortgage was 12%, right? We probably all heard that. Well, the nice thing was for them that their house was $100,000, not $500,000. So there's this idea that for the interest rate, when it's artificially low and suppressed, and I say artificially low and suppressed because that's what has been done to kind of pull forward growth into the economy, that pushes up asset prices, that pushes up stocks, that pushes up bonds, that pushes up veterinary clinic multiples, that pushes up all kinds of things around you, the stuff that you really want. And housing is one of those things. And so when rates go higher, the cost of capital, so going to borrow that money or doing things, that needs to be reflected in the asset price itself. So veterinary hospital, multiple should go down, which they kind of have started to, and they will cool off. Housing prices should come down and stocks should come down and bonds will come down. So you have to have that kind of reflect. But what's happened is you have 30-year mortgages that were in the summer of 2021 at 3%. Now they're closer to 7%. But we haven't seen that adjustment in the home prices. They've come down some, but they went up so far so fast that they haven't corrected back to what's normal. So they're still really expensive. Same way for stocks. I keep hearing people say, well, 2022 stocks were down, you know, 16, 17%. They got to be cheap. It's like, well, if you look historically, they're still pretty darn expensive. They're actually not cheap yet. And part of the reason is they got pushed up so high, so hard, so fast, and they're still kind of expensive. And there's certainly opportunities and stuff, but not to where it's a screaming buy that you should go and buy everything with all the, the dollars that you can. So you're a two-time guest now. So we clearly like you as a person and as a financial advisor. And you have even hired some veterinarians to your team. So what do you think most financial advisors miss when talking to veterinarians? I think just in general, understanding like what the life of a veterinarian is. And I'm learning, right? That's the beautiful thing about having Meredith and Ryan on the team. Like I still get to learn from them because I've never gone through vet school. I've never stepped into a clinic being the one that's working, right? I've been inside clinics, but I'm usually there either meeting with a client and just kind of observing or it was bringing a pet in, right? So I think ultimately one of the big things that a lot of financial advisors, not everyone, I think it's really hard to paint with a super broad brush because I've not talked to every financial advisor in the United States. So I think that's always tricky when you make those claims, but I've been guilty of it the same way. But most don't really want to reflect on how do you tie the personal and professional together. So if you really understand, hey, these are the issues, these are the challenges, this is what's really unique to veterinary medicine. But then there's also an individual attached to that, right? So they're going to have their own dynamics with that, that are going to make that kind of unique. Well, you don't know what the family history, you don't know these other things that are going on. So that's part of the discovery process. But within veterinary medicine, we can kind of all say these are the challenges. Like you hear them all the time as far as student debt load income, it's, you know, contracts or non-competes. If you talk to Paul Diaz, who is a good friend and someone that I've gotten to know, right? But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. But there's these things that you just need to know about the industry. And like, if I was a financial advisor that's never worked with a veterinarian, I wouldn't know those things. I know those things really well. And so do the folks on our team. And I think there's other advisors out there that are making a concerted effort to come into the space that want to know. And so ultimately, as a veterinarian, that should allow you to have better advice and guidance because they actually know what it's like to be you and what challenges you face. The same way if I'm a financial advisor and someone works with financial advisors for 
lending or for something else. They understand like, hey, this is how your business runs. We know the challenges. Oh yeah, we know that a subscription model or assets under management or your flat fee or your this or that. Like they understand how the pieces come together. And I think that's the same way with a financial advisor working with a veterinarian. It's okay, we understand how do you make revenue as a veterinarian? What are the challenges? What are the different things? What does the industry look like right now? And I think ultimately it's just spending time and becoming more of an expert. And you see that across the board where typically if you're a really broad generalist, it's harder to say who you are and who you serve. You're kind of just screaming into the void. And so for us, we've just tried to say, we're not trying to be all things to all people. Now, Vincere has clients that are non-veterinarian, but a lot of the folks on our team still have a, like a niche of an area that they work with. But then there's Ryan, Meredith, and myself that have said, we're only going to work within vet med because that's who we want to serve. A, we like them. I think people in vet med are awesome. And I say that a lot. So they're just nice and they want help and they need help. And we can be there to provide that resource if it's the right fit. Yeah. Shout out to Ryan Koopmans, who is also a DVM working on the Vincere team. So Isaiah, I wanted to get your point of view on this. So I've had intro calls actually now with a couple of vets recently who said that they've heard some financial advisors only work with clients who have a certain amount of money. I don't know if it's a misconception or if it's just a difference between firms. And so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think everyone can kind of choose the style that they want to practice the same way that you can with, you know, a veterinary clinic. There's high-end clinics that are going to charge a certain amount or they're going to have only a certain kind of clientele and others that are going to be, hey, we're going to have more volume and we're going to do it this way. To say that one is right and one is wrong, I don't know. Like what's the person that owns that business? What's their goals and what's their objectives? There are a lot of advisors that have minimum fees or you have to have a certain dollar amount. I've talked about this before, but my history is I worked at Merrill Lynch where it was, hey, you had to basically have a million dollars to invest in typically gray hair to become a client. Like that was kind of who we worked with, right? And as someone that was, you know, young 20s, I learned a lot and I saw a lot of stuff, but it was something that didn't make a lot of sense because you weren't really helping create wealth. It was more of like, okay, these people have made it. They've done things successfully in their career. And now it's like either maintaining it or, you know, helping them deal with some issues. Although I don't think there was really a lot of financial planning, but that's a whole separate conversation that we can talk on. It was more just glorified, put your money into these investments and we're going to charge you a lot for it. But yeah, I think it's something where ultimately at the end of the day, all businesses have to be profitable and they have to be able to run at a profit. And some businesses, they don't want to grow big and they can't serve everyone. So they were going to niche down and say, I'm only going to work with 50 clients and each client's going to pay me X amount because they want to make a certain amount and they know what their overhead is and that's what they're going to do. And there can be other businesses that say, hey, we're going to structure this differently. We're going to have different tiers of service. We're going to go after and work with people from lots of different situations and kind of grow with them. And there's no right or wrong. It's just a difference of opinion. But there absolutely are advisors that are willing to work with people that are like, I don't have any money to invest. That's okay. There's also advisors that say, hey, if you don't pay me $10,000 a year, you're not a client. And that's not saying that they're bad or horrible people. That's just their style of business. Okay, so let's say I got a list of financial advisors, you know, what's the best question to ask that financial advisor or any other common misconceptions about working with a financial advisor? Uh, I would ask them, what do they think about Bitcoin, Willie? And then watch them squirm. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, what I would ask and one of my favorite questions to ask, and we actually recorded a podcast with Ryan about how to kind of interview, especially within veterinary medicine, like interview a financial advisor. But one of my favorite questions is what's a non-consensus view that you hold? then maybe your peers don't. And it's pretty clear what Isaiah's is, so I'm not going to repeat. But it just isn't one of those like real basic questions that you're going to get some sort of basic answer that they've prescripted and thought about for 25 or 30 other clients that said the exact same thing. You hopefully get an authentic answer. And it's going to be something that they actually will maybe open up a little bit because ultimately, when you work with a financial advisor, what you want to happen is you want to have a real relationship and you want to be able to connect with them and share a lot of different stuff. And so if you think they're crazy, crazy person that likes Bitcoin. And you're like, that seems like the biggest scam in the world. Well, if you know that that's their non-consensus view, then maybe that's not the right fit. And you should go talk to the other person because there's other really good options out there as well. Or they say something you're like, mm, I don't really agree with that worldview. Maybe we wouldn't be the best fit. Now, I'm not saying that you need to you know, ask them, hey, what religion or what politics? I think that doesn't make any sense. And I think that you can have really good relationships with people that you see differently on lots of things in the world because ultimately a financial advisor should not be telling you this is how they would live your life. It should be what's important to you, understanding what it is that you're trying to accomplish and then say, okay, this is what we believe to be true based on our discussions. And this is what suggestions and options that make sense for you. And this is why. And tying it back to kind of that. But 
I like the non-consensus view because it's not a pre-scripted regurgitation of stuff that they say all the time. That's a good question overall to have in hand for an interview. <laughs> totally. It's a good question for anybody. Like yeah. I try to ask that to veterinarians and sometimes they're like, oh, I don't know. But I always hear like <laughs> if you have not, if you have 10 veterinarians in a room, you're going to get like 11 different answers or something. I don't know who made that joke to me one time, but it's like, it's the same thing. You can have a difference of opinion on something that one person thinks it's one thing and someone's like, well, I would do this and that's okay. It doesn't mean that one person is wildly off base. You might think that and they might think they're completely rational and that's okay. It's just a difference of opinion. Yeah. And we see that sometimes with medical cases too. There can be more than one right way to treat a patient and we don't always have to agree on the exact approach all the time. Yeah. It's like, what's the intent behind it? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to solve the issue that's in front of you? And everyone might have a slightly different way that they're going to solve the issue, but if they're trying to get to the same endpoint, and I think that's true, going back to the other idea of just like politics, right? Which is so polarizing. I think a lot of people actually are trying to get to the same place. They just disagree on the roadmap to get there, right? Like, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Isaiah, I haven't really asked you this question before, and so I wanted to get your insight on this. I've heard you talk about practice ownership, which we'll get into a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you specifically about your own experience. Why did you decide to build your own firm instead of continuing to work for a larger firm? Not just from the Merrill Lynch and how they were doing sure. things, but in general. Yeah, I think in general, part of it is like knowing where the trajectory of attention and how to build and scale a business was going. People want to connect to people that have opinions. And if you're tied into a larger organization, they're going to kind of tell you this is how you need to think. You can do anything you want as long as it's this way. And you're going to get your hand slapped enough. And I did. At Merrill Ward's like, oh, I want to create this thing because it would be really good because this is what people want. You're like, well, that's not approved through compliance. You can't do that. You can't say that. Well, it's like, okay, we're kind of at an impasse here. So you should change which they're not going to change for a little old Isaiah, right? There's way too much money, too much at risk that they're never going to change. So you have to go out and do it your own way. And I think the same way in veterinary medicine, you can go somewhere and you can have a really good career. You can do different things. But if you have your own opinions about the way that you think things should run or the style of practice, or maybe it's the technology, all those different things, you kind of have to go do it yourself. And I think that's typically in any industry when people start businesses, it's usually a little bit of a screw you, I'm going to do it better, right? Generally, that's kind of why they do it or they're tired of being told what to do and they think they can do it better. And I think my situation is pretty similar to that where it was like, I think I can do it better. I think there's a lot of people that are getting missed and the ability, tools and technology and just the landscape of the environment back in 2018 when I left allowed me to, to go do that. If it was 1978, there's no way I could have. Like the tools and technology weren't there. 1988, the tools and technology were not there. 1998, the tools and technology were not there. 2008 would have been a bad year just because of everything going on. Like you have to kind of wait until some of the technology catches up. And it's the same way right now in veterinary medicine, where the tools and technology to run and outsource and do different things are there to go be really successful in practice ownership. You don't have to do it all. There are other people that you can work with they don't even have to be in your same city or state that can be that resource to support you. And that could be, hey, I need legal help. I need someone to do my books. I need someone to do a review of you know, employment agreements or you know, setting up HR policies. Like There's people that can be a specialist that don't have to necessarily be there. That support would have been a lot harder to find in years past. So I think the idea of most entrepreneurs is I can do it better or I'm going to do it differently or I'm going to serve a population that's getting kind of ignored. And that's a good thing. And not all of them succeed. But one interesting stat that I saw, and I don't know how true it would be in BetMed, because I think startups are way, way, way more successful than a lot of other just general business startups. But if you buy a business, there's a 90% chance of success if it has positive cash flow when you buy it. And it's a 10% chance of success if you start up your own business. Now, I don't think that's even remotely close for BetMed because I see lots of de novos crush it. But it's an interesting idea of there's a reason why buying existing businesses and then making those changes can be helpful. But sometimes it's like steering the Titanic and it's going to take a long time to make the changes that you want in a three to five year or seven year period. I just had one of those conversations this morning and it's hard. You can't go and burn everything to the ground and rebuild it. Like the train is already moving and you got to jump on and kind of make changes as you go versus completely retooling it like you would if it was a startup where you can pick everything you ideally want the team, the technology, the style, the hours, all that stuff. Like you can't just go and say, you know what? 
for changing all this because there might be a reason those decisions were made in the past. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also relating it to vet med and just thinking about independent practice owners who are saying, I want to do things my own way. And it's often not from a medical perspective, because I don't think that corporations are out there telling us how to practice medicine. Some people disagree, but I don't think that that's the case in general. But with a larger company or a larger hospital group, there's going to be some cultural things that may be really positive, but there are also certain things that you might not be able to say or certain suggestions that you might not be able to make in certain situations. And so that makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to pivot our topic here a little bit, Isaiah, because I want to talk about investments. And so one of the things we have talked about previously is the all-weather investment strategy. And so can you talk about what that is? And then also, can you talk about how much of a portfolio you might base on that strategy versus other strategies? Yeah. So the idea of like an all-weather portfolio was originally made, I think, famous by a hedge fund manager named Ray Dalio. And the idea and the concept behind it is that you're going to own different types of assets. So let's say you're going to own stocks, you're going to own bonds, you're going to own commodities. And commodities being like precious metals or like things that go into things like copper or oil and natural gas, like these pieces that help run you know, the manufacturing or the development of countries, consumables, right? It could be that then gold would be a part of it. And then it could be holding cash. And it's like having these different ownerships of these different pieces in different proportions over time kind of manage the season. So when you think of all weather, if I just have a t-shirt and shorts and I live in Indiana, I might be wonderfully comfortable in the spring, great in the summer, a little chillier in the fall, and I'm freezing in the winter. Like that's not great. And it's similar in investing where there's going to be seasons where you want to be taking on more risk. And there can be seasons when you want to take on a little less risk. And so like there's different versions of all weather that are out there. And so like Vincere runs a version of like an all weather style of investment. But what that really tries to do is say what we're focused on is come hell or high water that you're first and foremost, the goal is not to have large losses. And then you can kind of have consistent returns over time that pairs well with other strategies that people probably already have, which is like I talked about at the very beginning, the onset, right? What do most people own? They own stocks and they own bonds and they're what is considered long. So they're going to own stocks and bonds and they're going to hope that those go up in value over time. And if they ever coincide that they go down together, like in 2022, it kind of stinks. And so the goal is how do you have something that can complement that really well? And an all-weather strategy works really well with that because it generates returns in a different manner. The best analogy that I've been able to use historically is like when you cook or you bake and you have these different ingredients, you need all of them to make the final recipe. You might be able to pull out a couple of those ingredients. They can be delicious on their own. So chocolate chips and a chocolate chip cookie recipe, still great. We like that. We go watch Netflix. We're happy. The baking soda, not so much. Like that's disgusting and would not be great, but you need that. So those cookies will go into the oven and bake and then come out. And that's actually much better, at least in my opinion. Like I like the whole cookie with the chocolate chips than just the chocolate chips itself. And so I think that's the idea of the all weather portfolios. It's giving you as many different ingredients and you are not as seasonally dependent. So typically when you invest, you have kind of four big key market styles or economic uh, seasons, let's call it. So you can have inflation higher, inflation lower. You can have economic growth up or economic growth down. So economic growth down, recession, inflation up or down. And then you have booming economy, inflation up, inflation down. And so there's those different kind of market cycles that we'll go through. And so an all-weather approach is saying, we aren't trying to pick which one that's going to be perfect, but we're going to be able to navigate and kind of flex between each of them. Another good example is if you have a dining room and you have a light switch that then has the dimmer switch next to it, think of that. There's times where you want it really bright. There's times where you want it a little less and maybe you're putting on mood lighting and you have candles or something. I don't know You know what you want to do, but there's going to be times that you want to adjust that and that allows you to do that. So I don't know if that answers the question, but that's just a lot of different thoughts that I had on it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that answers the question. And so that's one strategy type. And so if you're looking at, and I know this depends on the client, but how do you decide, okay, am I going to go with 50% of my strategy is all weather and 50% something else or whatever percentage? 
how do you decide how much of a portfolio to make that all weather strategy versus others? Yeah, it's a great question. And the always cop out answer is it depends. And I hate that. And I know it has to be nuanced there. But I think that the answer that most people would want to understand would be that it is two key risks. There's the risk tolerance and there's the risk capacity. So risk tolerance is can I go to sleep and be okay? So let's rewind, right? Everyone kind of remember, you know, February, March, April, 2020, if you had any money in the stock market, it went down and it was maybe scary or frustrating or, you know, like, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end type of thing where people got really, really panicked. But if you're not going to touch that money till, let's say it's in your 401k till 59 and a half and I'm 32, like, why does it matter that much today? And then the answer is it doesn't. Now, if that was my money that was going to go buy a house in three months, then yeah, I can understand you being a little bit more upset. And so I think that's where the risk capacity comes in. The risk capacity is when do I need this money? I might say I'm a really conservative person and I don't want to take on a lot of risk, but I have 30 years before I need the money. The risk capacity says take on a lot of risk and we should probably define what risk is and we'll get to that here in a second. But if I'm really conservative, I can say I just want to hold you know, something that I feel is safer and I'm just going to do that for 30 years. And that's the, kind of the risk of failing slow. But the risk of failing fast is I need this money for my mortgage payment next month and I YOLO'd on, you know, insert favorite meme stock on Robinhood. And so like you have to kind of balance those and it's like, what are we solving for and what are the different, I hate the term buckets because I feel like buckets get used a lot when people try to sell life insurance or things like that. They're like, oh, this bucket's for your safe money and you should buy this life insurance policy that's a whole life policy, which is crap. But there are kind of different areas where the money is going to sit that you're going to say, this is what it's there for. Like, what am I solving for? And then make the decision on what all weather works out. I mean, you can look at the numbers too for people that want to. It's like you run the numbers and look at what does this do over time? How does it compound? And then there's something that's really beautiful about adding assets together. So like stocks and bonds or stocks and commodities. And if they are what's called uncorrelated or they're able to kind of zig and zag and yin and yang at different times, and you're saving into that over time, it actually works much better than just saying like, well, I should just have 100% in stocks because I don't need it for 40 years. Well, that's fine. But there might come a time that it's actually better to own some other things that can actually accelerate the rate of return. Because if there's that bad moment like 2008, and all of a sudden stocks are crazy cheap, but you had 100% in stocks, you can't buy it cheap because it's just going to be you know, the little bit that you're saving into it versus if I have an allocation of a lot of different things, maybe that's a time where I'm going to make a change. And I'm going to say, you know what? I had some money in this other strategy that was a little bit safer, but it held up really well. I think this is, and most people never do this because they're scared to death. I'm going to take the money from where it was safer and I'm going to put it over here and you see that recovery and that's when it really, really can compound. And that's great. And it sounds easy to do in theory, like, hey, this guy in this podcast talked through it. Hard, 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 hard to do in reality because what do we always do? We're always fighting the last war. And so for people right now, they're looking back and saying, Stocks have crushed it for 10 years, US stocks only. Why would I want to own anything else? And what typically happens is you're going to see US stocks struggle mightily for the next decade, my opinion. So if you want to go back to a prediction, which will probably be terribly wrong, right? That US stocks might not do that great because they're just darn expensive and everyone believes that that's the place to be. So super long-winded answer on allocations, but something to think through. And I did say about risk. I don't know if we want to unpack that or leave that to you know round three. Hey, I took a risk on a meme coin and I'm doing pretty well. It's like 600% up. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I think, I think risk is, is usually just really, really misunderstood. Most people don't know what risk actually looks like. So let's unpack that. So when you think about risk, a lot of people will equate risk to, okay, the gyrations of up and down over a short period of time, months, years. What's actually risky is what we are owning, is that consistent over time or is there the ability for that to be wildly different and change? So example, I own a stock. I think the management team is awesome. A risk is that maybe the management team retires, right? The risk is not that the stock had bad earnings and is down 30% after the bell closes, right? Well, it might be a bad quarter and you might feel like that's really risky to own that, but like there's other real systematic risks that are out there. And I think a lot of people will put in other investments like, oh, this is risk-free. Like there's this term like this is risk-free. There's nothing that's riskless. If I hold cash, I'm taking a risk because historically I can guarantee you without a doubt, and this is one prediction that I will make and I will be 100% correct, without a doubt, your cash will be worth less in 10 years and buy you less goods. You know why? Because they keep creating more of it and they are debasing the currency. And so that is a risk as well. 
in so many different times, people just don't have a good handle on the risks that need to be taken. So there's a difference between like a calculated risk and like the foolish, you know, to Willie's point, like the meme coin, like, you know, I heard about this, I saw a Reddit thread, I saw something on Twitter, and I'm going to do it. And not to say that there isn't good information on those websites, there's really great information on both. Like if you know the right places, it's just filtering through it. But I just think so many people misunderstand what risk is because they're looking backwards and they're not really saying, okay, where are we at today? So great point. Bonds are supposed to be my safe money. Well, that's great if interest rates go down. Interest rates go down, bond prices go up. Interest rates go up, bond prices go down. People have been trained for a long time, like that doesn't happen. Interest rates don't go up. Well, then they do. So like, have you ever thought about if that happens, what happens to the money that you have saved? And I think a lot of people will learn that lesson. They will. I think most people listening to this podcast are not the baby boomer generation. Maybe I'm wrong. But those folks are going to find out really, really hard that bonds are not safe money because I don't think this 2022 return on bonds is isolated. I think it will be a consistent theme that is going to be very painful for people over the next, call it decade plus. So, Yeah. And thank you for talking about that recency bias with stocks also because... That's definitely something you see out there. And I see it with the fire movement as well to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fire movement is great. Like they're doing a lot of things excellent. Like saving is hard for a lot of people. And it's like they have that down. That's awesome. And to like demonize that idea is horrible. It's stupid. But the assumptions that are made are also wildly, wildly, wildly incorrect at times where they're going to assume a straight line that stocks only go up and they go up at this rate and then I'm going to be good. And It's like, well, yeah, if you're pulling on this money and you do it through a period where all of a sudden the S&P doesn't earn any money for a decade, what does that look like? And be like, that's never happened, Isaiah. Well, look from 2000 to 2010. The S&P 500 really didn't go anywhere. It was actually a negative annualized return over that time frame. And if I'm pulling money out during that, not adding, it's a very different situation. So it's not always as glamorous as the influencers on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram make it out to be, which I know is shocking to everyone. (laughs) That's not always as simple as VTSAX and relax, right? Yeah. So, you know, going back to investments and risk, what are your thoughts on practice ownership? You can control more in practice ownership than you can in the stock market or a lot of the other investments that you would have. So I think you have to know if you're suited for it and you're never going to know for sure. So I think I have to hedge that a little bit. Like you can read every book, attend every CE thing, do everything that you want to be. And you're going to be 65 and you're like, I'm ready for practice ownership now. And you know what? That ship has sailed at that point, unless you want to practice for a long, long time. Part of learning is doing. And I think any veterinarian probably knows that as well. Like when you get on your doing stuff, you're going to learn a lot more than kind of what was maybe an instructor led piece. But like when you get your hands dirty, you start doing stuff. Yeah. You're going to, you know, skin your knee, bump your elbow, all that other stuff. And it's going to be painful. And sometimes it's going to be like thousands of dollars when you mess up and that's okay. But that's like kind of the price of admission. But all that to be said, veterinary medicine is, again, I've said this so many times, but I have to keep saying it. It's poised for this golden generation of so much stuff. I was at VMX. You walk around there, there's 28,000 people. How much money was spent for all those people to get there? How much money was spent on those booths? How much money was spent on after parties? How much money is there all around veterinary medicine? And you know what makes it go? The DVMs. And so if there's all this money that's out there and all this money chasing this, That should be a very big sign that, hey, if I feel like this is what I want in my career, I can do it. The question should not be, ooh, can I do it? It should be, why not me? And that's what I always try to encourage people. Like, just ask the question, why not me? What's the worst case scenario? You fail and you go back and work for someone else. Sure, you get a little bit of a financial setback, but you know what? You'll probably be a lot more distraught when you're in your rocking chair talking to your grandkids, hopefully, you know, saying like, oh, I wish I would have started that practice, right? Versus, you know, I tried it, I failed, I learned a lot of lessons, and I scratched that itch and it didn't work. I think you'd be a lot more satisfied with yourself doing it and failing than you would with not doing it and then second guessing that decision. That's my opinion, at least. It's a good opinion. Yeah, to answer the question very bluntly, like, look at the profit margins, look at the options that are there. You can be a veterinarian today, go work for someone else for a while, get some skills, get your feet under you, get more comfortable, go start a business or buy something that is kind of poorly run, that is in an area that maybe is not as desirable. And if you run and get to the point where it's more than one doctor, you hit some revenue thresholds that are north of a million and a half to $2 million, and all of a sudden you're going to get people offering you more money than you ever could imagine. And that's even in an environment right now where interest rates are higher and multiples are coming down. 
But the wealth creation that can happen from practice ownership is unlike anything else. And your human health peers can only dream of doing some of that stuff because a lot of them are tied up into larger medical practices, which I know that's starting to change a little bit. But this whole sense of like, oh, I'm a veterinarian, I can't make any money. Well, it might be lumpy. You might not make as much for a while from a salary perspective, but when you get that big check, what's the company that comes to your house with the balloons? <laughs> Publisher's Clearinghouse. Yes. Like you're going to get that publisher clearinghouse kind of check down the road, possibly. Now you shouldn't hinge everything like your whole financial future on, well, it all works if I get this, right? So there's some other things you need to do, but there is that kind of wealth creation out there. And that's not to say that that's the end all be all, but you can actually be more satisfied in your career. And you know, AVMA did the studies, and I think it was a 2019 study of burnout, secondary trauma, all these different things that were negatives and practice owners scored much better than associates. So what you're saying is, you know, you think about mental health and wellness and all these different things that are being talked about, you're going to be stressed either way. And I'm sorry, veterinary medicine is stressful. Lots of jobs are stressful. And if you're building something for yourself, the stress at least hopefully is going to be more worth it. And it's not a guarantee. I've met practice owners that have practices that have worked their tail off and it's still not successful. So it's not like, oh, you just open a practice and people come in and then someone gives you a big check and like, that's what Isaiah told me. So like, where's it at? You still have to work, but I think there's a lot of benefits to practice ownership and it's strong and you should do it if you want to. And there are people out there that can help you. Yeah. And grains of salt here because Willie and I are sitting here as veterinarians who are not practice owners, Yeah, but uh, business owners, not practice owners. And the way that I would take that as a veterinarian in our audience is if practice ownership is something you want there's no reason why you shouldn't pursue it. If it's not something you want, that's okay too. It's a lot of work to not want something, like to go through all the stuff because it's not easy. But yeah, you're going to put in a lot of work to make it happen, especially on the front end. And if your heart's not in it, it's going to be really difficult. So as a financial planner, do you help vets with practice finances or is just more of their personal finances? So I don't do like bookkeeping and I don't do tax work, but as far as like reviewing financial statements, understanding how revenue is collected, giving ideas and walking through that. Yeah, that's something I enjoy doing and I like doing because it's trying to look at the business and say, okay, what is some of the cool technology that's coming out? How can you leverage that? What are the areas that you're struggling with? What's working well? I think that's a key point where a lot of people, especially right now, it's like, oh, I have all these issues. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about like, what's the thing that just worked really well last year? Like, what's the best part about your team? Let's get some of the really good things and make sure that we're highlighting that and thinking about that as we move forward. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think tying the personal and professional together, going back to the question on financial advisors, I think that is one thing that makes what we're trying to do and what we do do at Vincere different, right? Because a lot of other advisors, they're going to not want to touch that because again, they lack the understanding. And I always tell people like, I will be much better at doing that in two years, just like I'm better this year than I was last year. Because like, you talk to more people, have more conversations. It's the flywheel that keeps going where you just learn so much more and see more stuff to be able to help and make a bigger impact. So, yep. But yeah, don't ask me to do taxes, please. <laughs> <laughs> taxes are boring. Is that why, Isaiah? They're important. I just don't want to file taxes and that's just not the way that I'm wired. There's great people <laughs> out there that I'm happy to refer you to. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not your niche. Yeah. Not my niche. Not my niche. <laughs> So Isaiah, you talked a little bit about practice owners hiring, of course, great people to help them, probably more helping them with the business from a more macro perspective, but also some veterinary practices have started to work with remote employees who have positions actually within the practice. So remote CSRs or receptionists, triage technicians, sometimes even a remote hospital manager. And it's also becoming, of course, more common for veterinarians to work in industry roles and work remotely. And I know some technicians who do the same thing. You have a team of financial planners from across the country. And so what insights can you share on working with remote teams? I think you can find talent easier when your pool is bigger. So that's the benefit. The hard part, I think, is culture. So how do you build and retain and build great culture when people are remote? The happy hour when you sit on Zoom, that was cool for about a month in 2020. It sucks now. No one wants to do them. So please don't ask people to do it. You can have content that is published through Zoom and webinars, and those are great. But like to do socials, it's just hard. It's hard to do them well. And so I think the big challenge is how do you integrate and make everyone feel like they're part of the team? And how do you keep everyone engaged? And so I think 
you should hire good people, get the hell out of the way, let them do their work, and you should trust them. You don't need to micromanage them. Make their compensation structure work for remote to where you're not needing to micromanage them or you feel like, hey, they're not doing enough. Make sure that there's good alignment on that. I think that helps solve some of the issues. You can't do that for everything, but I think for some roles, you can kind of quasi build some of that in. Same way for like raises and other things. Like you need to make sure that there are consistent communication or ways for them to reach out, whether it's, you know, kind of asynchronous where it's like some text, whether it's Slack or some other channel or something like that, where they can at least message back and forth if they have questions. Because sometimes, especially if someone's newer and they're coming onto a team that's already established, it can be super intimidating to be like, how do I break in? Like, this is a stupid question. Like, how do I ask that? Who do I ask? And so you need to be really proactive to like reach back out and like, hey, how are you? Or set up consistent communication that's standing meetings or something like that to help with those people so that they don't feel isolated. Because I think that's a good way to bring someone on the team that needs some help and some training, have them not stay long. And if retention and recruiting is one of the biggest issues, you have to have a way that when people come on board that you can train and help them feel comfortable or get up to speed within reason. So hopefully it's quick, but if not, figure out a way that you can still kind of diagnose where they're struggling. So those are my thoughts. Still learning, right? I mean, we're growing and there's lots of reasons where it's like, hey, this worked or this didn't work. So good answer. Yeah, I heard you say that phrase before, but the whole thing about hire good people and get the hell out of the way. I just love the concept because I've been doing, you know, side gigs. I really have enjoyed working at shelters. And first thing I hear from vet assistants, oh, yeah, I left that job because they didn't let me do anything. I'm like, man, you hire, you know, if you hire this person because you thought they were good, let them make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Let them see what their potential can be. Yep, totally. Because you can actually know if they're doing their job well if you won't let them do it. So like, how are you actually (laughs) going to measure if they're good or bad or anything different? So, yeah. So, you know, good and bad. You know, I preach the emergency fund and I like people who have a strong emergency fund. Unfortunately, I also see veterinarians that are holding too much cash in the bank. And like you mentioned, cash is going to go down in value. What what would be the approach for that veterinarian? What can they do with that extra cash? I think it goes back to that idea of the risk capacity. Like, what is the money for? And if we know that it's shorter term, maybe it's a different decision. It's funny because who was it the other day that was telling me, like, I love getting the emails from Ally because it's telling me my interest rate's going up, right? Like, <laughs> yes, a little I thing. It. It's like a little dopamine effect, right? And it's like, oh man, I'm making so much money. I'm like, you do know that. It, so it's paying you three, four, three, three, whatever it is right now. I was like, do you know what the cost of your life is going up? Is it going up 3.4? I was like, odds are it's probably not, right? It's going up more than that. So you're still losing in that race. But yeah, I mean, you're going to include it into kind of the overall investing landscape. And I actually hate the idea when, and I catch myself saying this all the time, but put money to work. Well, you already worked to get the money. You already did that. And they paid me. Now, why does it got to go to work again? And that's fundamentally why, you know, I think the, the monetary system is broken. But that aside, you have to play the game. You have to understand what game you're playing. You can't hold cash. So you have to go and do something with it. So you have to find things that you want to own. I think having a taxable brokerage account is a wonderful thing. And being able to invest in that account for various different goals that maybe are five, six, seven, you know, 10 years away, because it gives you flexibility to access it if the oh crap moment happens. But it's also something that is a step above holding cash. And you don't have to own 100% stocks in that. And I think that's where people think it's like, you know, pedal to the floor or it's cash. And it's like, there can be a little bit of an in-between going back to kind of our discussion around the all-weather strategy or something like that, where it blends trying not to take on a ton of risk, but still generate some kind of return. I think for excess cash, like a lot of people want to have passive income. They want to do real estate and stuff like that isn't liquid. So that's really hard. I think you need to make sure that if you want to go that route, that you have a lot of extra stuff on hand because you're not going to get that money back out for a long time. And it can sit, especially if you're even trying to sell it for a long time. Um, One thing that you can do is if you want to hold a lower cash balance is look at, and they're not as affordable as they were, but you can set up a home equity line of credit as something that is the oh crap moment in case you really, really need something. Now those rates are much higher and you have to be a homeowner, right? So it's pulling on the equity of your home. You can open it you are not required to use it. There's no cost until you pull on it. Most of these are variable rates. So it means if interest rates are going up, they're going to be much higher. I have seen some fixed rate HELOCs, but I don't know if those are around anymore because the rates have gone up so much because the one that I know is a really attractive rate that I'm sure everyone wishes they could have. But that can be another way where you wouldn't have to necessarily maybe sell those investments if it was coinciding with, let's say the market being down or something where you're like, ooh, where else can I grab this? Or maybe it's, I don't want to pay taxes on this money and where else can I grab it knowing that I have other income coming in? 
But yeah, I agree. Like you need an emergency fund. But ultimately, if you're younger and you still have good earning capacity and you're in veterinary medicine, and again, it depends, right? But there's lots of ways for veterinarians, I feel like, to wake up the next day if something happened, unless it's like a disability or something where you literally can't work. So, you know, I'll put that qualifier out there. So A, get some disability insurance. But you can go invent money, right? When I say that, you're talking about, Willie, like side hustles. There's lots of things you can do. I think you two are prime examples of going and doing other things with the skill set that you have. But there's so much demand for relief work. There's so many different things that you can go do to go find something to be a bridge until you maybe have that full-time employment again. So that's not always the case for everyone. There's sometimes reasons why relief doesn't work or they want to get out of clinical practice. But yeah, I think if you're holding more than six months in cash and you're not looking at like a big down payment for a home or a vehicle that's in the very near term, I think ultimately you're probably going to be hurting yourself more so than helping. And you can laugh because last year it would have been much better to hold cash than anything else. (laughs) Well, almost anything else, right? So that would have been more helpful. But in most years, that's not going to be the case. So Isaiah, you said the monetary system is broken. And so that leads us into the next question that I wanted to ask. So I know it's hard to be brief about this, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask for three bullet point reasons why vets should care about Bitcoin. Yeah. And I promise I will be brief. This won't be the rant part of the episode. I promise that. So A, a lot of the assets that you think you own, you don't actually own. Bitcoin is one of the only assets you can truly actually own. The other thing is Bitcoin is a scarce asset. They can't create more of it. So you can actually save the value. So you actually truly can have an emergency fund and actually truly have savings versus having something that someone else can dictate that they're going to make more of tomorrow. And then I think if you're a practice owner, there are other crazy weird people out there like myself that will go support your businesses. If you accept Bitcoin and you can use it as a marketing idea, you can also help lower the cost of processing payments as well. So those would be the three reasons why people should care. Wow, those were super short. Yeah, I'm shocked myself. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I try, I try to follow the direction of what I've been told. So I did my best. <laughs> Willie, should we unpack any of those? I'm not sure. I am the worst like, person. Please, no. He's e- like, Meredith, please e- don't. Well, the funny thing is every time Isaiah says anything in his podcast or posts something in LinkedIn about Bitcoin, I ask him questions and he always answers them. But I still have more questions that I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know, how do I buy Bitcoin? Where do I store it? Where do I? It's always asking the same questions. It's a process. I think that's the, the hard part is like you have to put in some work. But I think what my ultimate mission, right? Why do I talk about Bitcoin so much? My wife has joked, just like, if you really think it does what you think it's going to do, wouldn't you want no one to know about it so you can accumulate more? I'm like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose because everyone should have it. And I don't want it to be something that's owned by the uber, uber wealthy, right? Like you want it to be distributed across everyday people. But you have to put in some work. And my big thing is the juice is worth the squeeze. So if I can give a gentle, kind, sweet, loving nudge to a veterinarian out there to say, hey, here's some resources, go learn. That's great. And I think the biggest thing is so many people similar to like starting a practice, you can be 65 and you'd still be learning about Bitcoin. I'm still learning about Bitcoin, right? I'm not done. Like I haven't like stopped learning. So I think one of the biggest things is you can go and get a little bit and continue to learn and you'll get more, but you don't need to borrow Isaiah's conviction that Bitcoin is the greatest thing since sliced bread, right? You have to develop that conviction yourself and then you will hold the allocation of Bitcoin appropriately based on that conviction. So maybe it's, I'm going to hold 1%. That's fine. I think the wrong decision is zero. And so my argument is that you should not be zero because there's no, there's not no risk, right? There's risk with everything. But the idea of being zero and holding Bitcoin at a a zero allocation to the rest of the decade will be one of the things, if you're listening to this and you hear my voice, will be the biggest regret in my humble opinion that you will have. So have a little bit will be better than nothing. And if I am dead wrong, play back the clip and send it to me in 2033, right? And I'll I'll happily laugh and we'll move on from there. But what I think more likely happens is you see the adoption of this. It continues to grow. It proliferates around the world, not only just in the United States. And you get to participate in the monetization of an asset that has not happened. Like we haven't witnessed something that has gone from collectible store value, medium of exchange, unit of account in the history of anyone living. And I think that's what Bitcoin ultimately does because it is money. And so it gives you money that you can save into. But I promise I'm done there on the Bitcoin conversation. <laughs> That's fine. If anybody has any more questions about Bitcoin, what's the best way for our colleagues to get in touch with you? 
I mean, they can just connect on LinkedIn is an easy way and you can send me a message. They can join the Facebook group for the podcast. They can reach out to either of you two and you all can get them in touch. But there's plenty of good resources. I have a pinned tweet on Twitter of the best resources that I've found. And so we can share that out if people want it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can attest to that. Isaiah is very approachable. All right. So that brings us to our last question, Isaiah. What is your best advice for our listeners? I think it's understanding what you're solving for. Like, what do you actually want? Not what you were told that you were supposed to do. Not what you thought you were going to do five years ago. Like, what do you want to do now? And what is most important? And then align those decisions around that, whether it's what you do for your career, what you do financially, how you save, all that. Because going back to your point, Meredith, earlier, like if you want to be part of the fire crowd, you're going to make very different decisions if that's what you want versus thinking, "Mm, that seems really silly. I want to go do these things now today. And there's going to be trade-offs. There's no silver bullet that's going to like solve everything. But it's really thinking through hard, like what is it that I want? Where do I actually find joy? And where do I get energy from when I'm doing these things? And where's the spot where it's like, this is what's draining me to where I don't want to keep doing that. And I think you got to lean into the things that you enjoy most. And maybe that's a big decision. And for some people, maybe that's leaving veterinary medicine. And I do think, as we talked on this podcast, I think veterinary medicine is a wonderful spot. Maybe it's not going to be right for everyone. And you feel like you have this sunk cost of your education and you can't leave and you know people will judge you that you know. It's like, well, if it changes and you want to do something different and you think that, hey, I'm willing to do these things for this because it's going to make me happier, like you need to go do that. So that's what I would tell people is what are we solving for and what do you really want? Excellent advice. Yeah. Again, we talked about saving money and making different financial decisions. And that's exactly right. Like, what is your end goal, I guess, is my main thing. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And financial success doesn't look the same for everyone. Exactly. Yep. I just want to travel the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you, Isaiah, for a great conversation. I expected a lot of back and forth, but not like this. It was awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, hopefully listeners can uh, get something out of our back and forth. So appreciate both of you. They will. Thanks so much. If you like this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.